It is so good to be back on recording for you guys. I know that we switched from a weekly podcast to a monthly podcast, and that was just my effort to make sure that I could keep pumping these out uh, for you guys, create new content, and also be able to have a sustainable workload. So I feel like monthly is going to be good for everyone and make sure that the Stable Moment podcast can continue to go on. I'm so excited for 2021 and the guests that we're going to have. It's a new year and, you know, we're going to rock it out with some amazing guests that help us understand kind of the foster care crisis and what we can do about it. So Jumping right in, today's guest is Angela Flores. She is a rock star. She's dedicated her life to social work, and she herself was a foster youth, so she knows what it's like, and she has, although she's been, you know, Department of Children and Families uh, supervisor, and she's worked through the whole kind of child protective services arena, and now she works with juvenile justice. So she lets us know how juvenile justice and kids that commit crimes, uh, how that is interconnected with the foster care system and, and how that happens and how that works and what supports are out there for kids. And, you know, of course I had some questions about if a kid has a juvenile record, are they less likely to get uh, a home, a foster home? And what does that all look like? So she lets us know she is so empathetic and compassionate. She is the caseworker probation officer that you would want to have uh, or you would want your kid to have. She treats every kid like they're her own. And we just, we need more rock stars like her. I'm so excited that she was able to give some of her time. So without further ado, we'll roll that intro and then we'll talk to Angela. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. All right. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on the podcast. I'm excited to have you. I know it's been a crazy year and a long time coming because we had made contact like forever ago. Um, but I'm excited to have you today. So if you could just start by introducing yourself and introducing your um, a little bit about your background and how you got started in this work. Yeah, so my name is Angela Flores. I want to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I'm a big fan of your podcast. I love learning from different people's lived experiences. I love learning different people's professional perspectives and I, I definitely think it's a big help for improving the foster care system that we all listen to each other and learn from each other and I am somebody who got involved in this work because of my personal experiences my mother she was in foster care and then by her foster parents and she became a mom to me when she was a teenager my dad was a teenager too. And so when they had difficulty caring for me, um, my grandparents became my legal guardians. And I joke with my sister who grew up with me more so than um, any of my other siblings. I joke with her that we had all of the aces. We had all of the adverse childhood experiences and we still turned out all right. You know, so I hope it gives a lot of hope to people who are working with kids who have been through really difficult circumstances that with love and with support, um, kids can still achieve their dreams. And so I know that um, working 
in the child welfare system, um, I had the the background of having, you know, my own parents who weren't always able to care for me, but they were uh, people who could visit me and people who um, could care for me and help me later on in life when their circumstances change. I actually ran away from home when I was still in high school. I was 17 years old and it was the beginning of my senior year of high school and I kept going to high school every day. I graduated high school on time. And um, I know that a lot of kids that I work with aren't as fortunate as I was because a family helped me out and they let me live with them practically for free. And it was really healing for me to have a family didn't have ulterior motives. They just wanted to help somebody. And, and um, I, I know that um, ha having run away, a, a lot of the kids that I work with didn't have the amount of support that I did. Um, and so interning in the juvenile court uh, probation department when I was in college, I realized that what separated me um, from a lot of the children and families that I saw in juvenile court was that I had a, a lot of support, a ton of support. And so um, I, I'm really grateful to get to use the experiences and the knowledge that I have um, to help other people. I love that. Uh, yeah, so that is beautiful. So what's your current role um, and your duties and responsibilities? Yeah, so my current role is working for a juvenile court in, in Georgia. I work with children who have been charged with formerly known as status offenses. Now in Georgia, these offenses are known as children in need of services offenses. Uh, so I'm a case manager and probation officer for kids who have been charged with running away, um, being unruly or ungovernable, um, truancy, things that wouldn't be a crime if mm -hmm. you were over 18 years old. How, what is the approach for, I'm guessing that they um, have separated out these cases for a reason, you know, to get these kids hopefully the, the support that they need. So what is the approach uh, that, that your department uses with these cases? Yeah, so, um, luckily, there's been a lot of improvements in terms of research in adolescent brain development and what's evidence-based in terms of what, what is helpful for kids. Um, so for kids who are low risk, low treatment, or little to no touch from uh, the juvenile justice system is what is best for them. So. We try to divert kids away from probation, divert kids away um, from formal court who are low risk to reoffend, and then provide services to meet their needs. So we can give a child in what's considered an informal adjustment agreement, or um, it's just a, a way for them to have an assessment and have services and, and hopefully not have to become further involved with the juvenile justice system. But some children, um, especially those who are higher risk, um, are placed under probation um, or ha have formal court hearings. And, and so I, I work with kids with being handled by the juvenile court in different ways. Okay, that makes sense. So what are the most common supports that kids need? Yeah, so a lot of kids who come into contact with the juvenile justice system, there's, there's estimates that 60 to 70% have mental health needs. And a lot of those mental health mm -hmm. needs are un, undiagnosed, untreated. Um, so uh, kids can have counseling, um, the family can have counseling, tutoring, mentoring. I'm really fortunate in uh, the juvenile court that I work in, I'm part of a multidisciplinary team. So we have a therapist that actually uh, can complete clinical assessments and uh, we can make sure that we, we've 
tried to find the root cause of, of what's causing the behavior mm -hmm. before we put in an intervention because there's so many great uh, services and resources uh, in the community that I work in and we want to make sure that we we use the most effective one. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I love this because on the podcast, so many, so many times people say how we end the foster care crisis is ensuring that kids don't come into care. So um, if you're dealing with a kid that's still in their home of origin and you can help the family and give support to the kid, then I can imagine that that can help with permanency and them staying in that home of origin. How, you know, I feel like with family systems, a lot of times the whole family needs support and um, how engaged or disengaged do you find uh, the families to be? Um, like, do you feel like this is an individual approach or do you feel like there's supports that actually go in and give the families the support they need to be able to support the child? Yeah, I know that increasing youth engagement, increasing family engagement is one way we can improve um, the foster care system and, and the juvenile justice system. Um, and I think that learning things like um, different parenting styles that are correlated with higher rates of delinquency. And I know you've had people on the podcast talk about this before that, you know, parents oftentimes lean towards being a little bit on the lenient or permissive side or uh, parents being overly demanding or uh, overly strict mm -hmm. and we want to try to help parents be somewhere in the middle in terms of um of you know the the type of parenting style we want to empower parents to provide the first response to uh, misbehavior because a lot of children just grow out of misbehavior that might bring them to the attention of the juvenile court we know that prefrontal mm -hmm cortex is still growing and we know that um, kids who um, have disruptive behavior, it, it that doesn't necessarily uh, mean it's delinquent. Right, yeah, my, if that was the case, my one and a half year old could be arrested over and over again for um, all the abuse that he Exactly, <laughs> exactly, we gotta, we gotta separate that, right? Absolutely. Okay, well, so I love that. And I love that they have divided these cases up as, you know, um, cases that are ones that really just signify to the system, hey, this kid, this family needs a little bit more support. Um, so how does the juvenile justice system integrate with Department of Children and Families? I think sometimes it, it does it well, and sometimes it doesn't. And a lot of times I think it depends on the individual case managers and probation officers, but ideally we should share information. Ideally we should work together and all have the same goal uh, in terms of, you know, the best interest of the child, the best interest of the community. Now is something like truancy or a runaway, is that immediately uh, juvenile justice does department of children and families get involved are both notified like how does how does that work just from like a process standpoint yeah well um in the juvenile court where i work in georgia um kids who are considered chronically absent and um are not attending school the the school will provide several interventions um, to try to address that. And if they continue to be concerned, they can file a, a complaint in the juvenile court. And for kids who are in elementary school, that would be considered educational neglect. And the court would look into mm. what are the, the reasons the parent isn't able to get the child in, to school. And um, you mm. know, oftentimes if they're in middle school or high school, that would be considered truancy. And um, we would look at what we can do to, uh, to see why the child isn't going to school, um, even though there still are 
family factors for, for a child not going to school. And it's really interesting during the pandemic, um, I think that we are giving kids a lot of, and families, a lot of grace and a lot of understanding. Mm -hmm. I am a person who is in, I'm deeply committed to being a community member that, that cares about all children in my community, not just my, my son who just started high school and my daughter who just started middle school. I, I want to help all kids in the community. And I've seen a lot of parents um, struggle with the digital divide. Um, you know, my, my kids are going to school remotely right now. So I definitely think that during this pandemic, there is a widening gap of um, kids who have parents who can help them um, do their homework virtually and kids who don't. And there's a big increase in um, school engagement that I've seen. And so I hope that, you know, this is a time that people can, can really care for, for kids and try to support and help kids. Yeah. So at what point, if the school makes a truancy claim or just says a kid's not showing up and they do, you know, report this claim to juvenile justice, is there a point in which it becomes a department of children and families or a defects issue? You know, if, you know, we're mandated reporters, and if we notice things that um, make us suspect there may be child abuse or, or, or neglect, then we need to make a referral to the Department of Family and Children's Services and uh, allow them to investigate it if it rises to that level. And sometimes when um, children are already involved with the juvenile court, a juvenile court judge could decide to place them in foster care because they see uh, things that are rising to the level of um, that, mm -hmm. that child being dependent. And I don't think that it happens very often, but I do think that it happens. And um, I definitely think that you know, sometimes kids becoming involved in the, the juvenile court could put in place services um, to prevent the family from needing to, to have the child removed. Because if I can put in place parenting classes for a parent, or if I can um, put in place family counseling, then that hopefully could prevent some kids from coming into foster care. Yeah. Do the, do the support uh, services and focus, are those also given to kids that um, commit crimes that are, let's say it's shoplifting or it's something that you would get charged if you were an adult, um, but there's still evidence that they just need some support at home or, or whatever. Is that still offered to those kids? Yeah. Um, kids who have committed first time misdemeanor delinquent offenses, a lot of times they're offered a diversion too. And that's what's best for them if they're low risk to reoffend. But kids who have committed delinquent offenses and are higher risk to offend and need higher treatment, they can receive services that um, help the whole family. Great. That's awesome. So are there a lot of kids that are involved in the juvenile justice system and they're also currently in foster care? I always say that, you know, I'm not an expert in, 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 in child welfare or, or, or juvenile justice, but um, I have heard a lot about um, the foster care to prison pi pipeline or the abuse to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And there's research that there is higher rates of um, juvenile justice involvement for kids who are in foster care or uh, higher rates of incarceration after leaving care. Yeah. So for your cases or in your experience, does a child that's in foster care, do you notice that it impacts their ability to perform the duties of their probation or to you know, like adhere to their adjustment agreement? Are there, are there just added stressors to be able to be successful in what juvenile uh, justice is supposed to be? In my experience, 
um, kids who are in foster care are not required to pay fines and fees that they're not able to. If a child is uh, changing placements, they wouldn't be required to report to probation if they're unable to to have transportation to get there. And so I, in, in my experience, I try to work really closely with foster parents. I try to work closely with um, case managers and work together to do what's best for children. But I do think that if you have a child who has biological parents or a family member that's caring for them and they know them really well and they go to court and they advocate for that child to come home with them that day, you know, that is a protective factor that sometimes children in foster care don't have. And I used to be a foster care case manager. I used to be a foster care supervisor um, for the Division of Family and Children's Services here in, in DFACS. And I always tried to make decisions based on how would I want to be treated myself? How would I want my child to be treated? Um, and I thought of the kids that <laughs> I was a case manager for as my children because I was their legal guardian. and. It was really mm -hmm. stressful to be uh, a case manager because my caseload size was so high that I often felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do as much as I wanted to do for, for my children who were in foster care. But I, and I worried, am I doing too much? Am I being too overprotective of them? Or am I not doing enough? Mm -hmm. And am I not, <laughs> not being protective enough? You know, I worried if I was doing too much or not enough, but I knew that um, I was always trying to do what was best for them. I always had their best interest in heart. And um, I think that I, I, I encourage people to always listen to children. Um, it's their life. They're the experts on their mm -hmm. life. I mean, we got to ask them what are their dreams what are their hopes and really let them meaningfully participate in decision decision making because mm -hmm. it's their life and and so i think sometimes when we worry about kids then we want to be more controlling of them mm -hmm. and when we're fearful uh, about what might happen to them we want to tell them what to do more so <laughs> but sure. really really we should be be trying to focus on what are the positive outcomes that we want to see you know unless a child is a suicidal or homicidal or a danger to their community then we should try to keep them in the least restrictive placement the most family-like placement i worked in a group home for girls before in Department of Juvenile Justice custody, some of them just being released from youth detention centers and also some kids who were placed there because they were in foster care. And um, I had a child tell me, you know, there's some kids who are here because of choices that they made, but I'm just here because I was abused. And in the county that I live in, there's no foster parents who will take a teenager in their home. And that's why I'm here. And um, so just it just reminded me you know we shouldn't always lump children together who are in foster care and kids who are juvenile justice involved and like you said i think it's so good that in georgia we're separating delinquency from children in need of services yeah absolutely so you just touched on something i was wondering about are there instances where um kids remain in detention centers because they lack a placement there's nowhere for them to go i mean i wish i could say that didn't happen i don't think it should happen and um i don't think kids are placed in foster care because there's no other placement for them but is it harder for foster care case managers to find a placement for a child who has a a delinquency um, or um, more difficult behavior, yes, it's harder for, for um, foster care case managers to find a placement. And um, is a child more likely to be recommended to remain in 
foster and um, remain in the youth detention center if there's no placement for them. I think that does happen. Yeah, and it's interesting when you tell tell the story about the girl that she said you know she was just abused and and she's just in foster care, so she's in this group home and and grouping them together. In your experience, do you see kids that once they're labeled, because it's hard to, even if she wasn't labeled as bad or uh, as a juvenile delinquent, it feels that way, right? You are your environment. You're put in a situation where um, you are where people go when they're not able to be home with their families or they have committed some type of crime. So do you notice kids take on um, an identity of, I guess I'm just bad and I guess I just commit crimes and this is what I do. Like, do you see the same kids come in and out and kind of take that on as their identity? Well, I absolutely see kids being negatively impacted by um, that, that sort of thing. And I think that when you um, place a child into a group home or you place a child into a youth detention center, the negative peer associations or influences can can have a negative impact on them. I mean, I know that, you know, not too long ago, there were scared straight programs and boot camps, mm-hmm. which have have now shown to to be not effective. And actually, you know, they don't decrease recidivism. And um, I I tell people, you know, if you place a child in a youth detention center, they're going to be there with kids who have been alleged to have murdered people who have committed violent offenses. And so you don't want to take that lightly. A punitive approach only uh, to low-risk kids um, it's not effective. And, and so I, I think that kids shouldn't be labeled just as bad. Like if I make a defax referral for a child who is involved with a juvenile court, I don't want a defax case manager to say like, oh, this is just a bad kid. You know, you really have mm-hmm. to look into what's going on um, and not have those biases. And I think that's one way that we can improve the disproportionate um, disproportionate contact for Black children in the juvenile justice system and the child welfare system is we can look at our implicit biases. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see that there is a lot more people who want to, to make meaningful reforms in these areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I think of cases that I've um, been a part of where, um, you know, a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old that was in foster care happened to be put, you know, in the same bedroom as a female younger foster child. And, you know, he was charged with sexually assaulting her, but he came from a home where he was a sexual assault victim. And so now he carries this, this sexual, um, you know, crime that he has committed on him and he has to appear in court and he has to go to certain, you know, sex offender type treatment, but it, he's really viewed as a, as a perpetrator. Um, and not as a victim that's like trying to make meaning of his experience. Have you seen, um, have you seen effective ways to get at the root cause and not uh, label a child as now you're a perpetrator? Well, I think that we are increasing and improving the type of assessments that we do for kids. And that's so important because we don't want to just look at the behavior Um, We want to do a real thorough assessment. And then when we know the root cause, then we can can, um, come up with effective interventions. And um, I have another example or story. I have an uncle who actually um, was 
in foster care. Um, he's my mom's older brother. And my mom would always tell me that the worst thing for her about being in foster care is that she was separated from her siblings. And um, her mm -hmm. older brother ran away from an abusive foster home and was placed in a mm -hmm. youth detention center. And at that point is when he said that he started drinking, doing drugs, being exposed to kids who were um, in gangs. And my uncle ended up going to prison um, when he was eight, when he aged out of foster care and um, mm -hmm. he lost custody of his biological children and uh, they were adopted by their foster parents. And he, you know, would always say, like, if somebody asked me why I was running away, I could have told them I was being abused. And then I could have just been placed mm -hmm. in a different foster home. But because I was placed in a youth detention center with kids who were, had worse behavior than me, he, that's really what was the thing that <laughs> sent me, you know, down the wrong path. And I, I have to say, you know, his story didn't end there. You know, now he's a grandparent and now he is somebody who is, is a, you know, productive member of society and a, a loving, caring father and grandfather now. And so um, I, I think that people, people definitely can change. And I've seen that firsthand. Yeah, and not only that, like one small intervention can really set the tone for a life course, you know, just once, you know, there's a lot of, you know, miscarriages of care, they are kind of, you know, choosing a good foster placement for him, making sure foster uh, placements are not uh, causing further trauma, but then looking into the root cause of why he's running away, maybe getting him the support he needs, getting him a new foster home, validating the fact that he should have never had to deal with that in the beginning, um, and getting him into, you know, programs that would develop life skills and help him, you know, not have to go through a period where he felt like not worthy or worthless in some of those aspects um where nobody was standing up for him and nobody even asked him exactly yes so you do you feel like now though because of the role that you have and the way that they've broken down these cases that would not happen today yeah i definitely i definitely think that there's been huge improvements in um asking kids why um, a lot of times kids who are running away are, they're victims of sexual exploitation. Um, I think that listening to, to, to youth is just, you, you can't, you can't overstate how important it is to listen to, to young people and believe them. Yeah, absolutely. Letting them being involved in their own care and giving them a voice and, and choices. Uh, there's been several former foster youth on the podcast and they're like, they just wanted some choices, even if they were just, you know, this medication or this medication or this home or this home, or what do you think is best for you? Just some voice. Yeah. And I try to do that as a probation officer and case manager. I try to tell youth, you know, it's your life. These are your choices to make. And what I can do is I can help you think about what the consequences might be. If you choose this, this is what a consequence you might have could be. Mm -hmm. And so having that sort of non-judgmental um, approach of counseling youth or mentoring youth, um, that is usually what's more helpful. Absolutely. Do you, um, can you, Tell me about one of your hardest cases, like a case that kept you up at night or you just felt like uh, you wish you could have done more. I mean, I, I think I have so many and um, some of them are similar to the story that you were sharing about the little boy who was placed in a, a foster home with a, a girl in his room. And that was, you know, maybe if he was placed in a different placement, then that wouldn't have happened. And if we knew that he had that type of behavior before, that's 
you know, not where he would have been placed. Mm -hmm. And I have children that I've worked with that I placed them um, in a foster home that I thought was the best thing for them. And I didn't know that they were in an area where they had been involved in a gang before. Mm -hmm. And if I would have known that information, I would have placed them much farther away. (laughs) And um, I have uh, children that I've worked with who were being sexually exploited and um, they, you know, I, I have asked for a child to be placed in foster care only two times in over two years of working now at the juvenile court. And um, those cases were really difficult for me. One was a child who wasn't being abused or neglected by her family, but she was being sexually exploited and there wasn't anything that I could do in in, in the community to try to prevent that. And um, she was placed in foster care so that she could be in a safe home Mm -hmm. for girls who have experienced um, sexual exploitation. And um, so I think those are the, those are some of the difficult cases I've had. Yeah. Well, tell me about um, a time when you felt like the system worked, like uh, one of your biggest wins. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, some of your hardest cases are some of your biggest wins too. Mm -hmm. So I would say the the girl that I uh, worked with, um, you know, she was running away from home and that is what brought it to our attention that she was being sexually exploited. Um, and she was placed in a, a safe home that she graduated from. She got counseling, she got life skills, all those wonderful things. And, um, she successfully graduated, uh, from that program. And I think that, you know, might've saved her life. That's awesome. I love those stories. How do you think we end the foster care crisis? Well, I think I I have pretty much uh, the same type of thoughts that you have about it. I think it's just the whole community caring about kids and it can't be something that just DFACS does. I mean, when I worked at DFACS, you know, I was responsible for providing services for the foster parents, for the biological parents, assessing family members, <laughs> making sure that every every one of the child's needs were met. And um, defects cannot do it alone. You know, it has to be, you know, churches and the schools and neighbors and, and family members. It has to be everybody in the community working together and really just treating children and families the way that they would want to be treated in that situation. Yeah. What do you think, what do you think the public can do? Or if the community says like, okay, I get that this is an issue and there's kids that are either in need of services um, or there's kids that are already in care what do you think the call is to the community? I think the call is really just to support people and everybody is worthy Mm. of support. You know, everybody is worthy of somebody helping them no matter what they've done. um, They're so worthy of that. And so if, if we can, you know, be less, judgmental of other people be less critical of other people and just love and support them uh, I think that would make things a lot better yeah I totally agree and it makes me think of um, like the narratives that kids take on and the narratives that we take on and how we perpetuate those interesting because I'm a new mom so that I can look at it from like a, a parent perspective but there's times like at my kids daycare or whatever that that he'll be you know, it'll be like, you know, he's biting or he's doing something and um, he's, you know, uh, you know, he's one and a half. So I'm not concerned about it. But if it's like several reports in a week or, um, you know, he's really having a hard time or he's not in a good mood or whatever, I start to get nervous about like, 
this is totally where it could start. Like it can start with like, you were hard to deal with. Um, and it can, you can be the kid that's kind of just known as like, you were hard to deal with. And at what point it just makes me, cause I'm into child psychology. At what point does a kid go, I'm just the kid that's hard to deal with. And they take that on. And I'm like, you know, of course I'm like, this isn't going to be the narrative, you know? And I, I probably am more, um, I probably need to step back and let him live his life a little bit. Uh, but I had the same experience. My son was on the verge of getting kicked out of his daycare because he went on a biting rampage. <laughs> and so I was in that same place, you know, all of us as parents, I think we, you know, want what's best for our kids and we get afraid when their behavior, you know, gets, gets to the attention of, of somebody who, who is saying like, we should be concerned about this. And, you know, um, and, and so I think that when, when you have a child um, who has difficult behavior, it's really important to look at what's underneath that. A lot of it's just normal developmental and they're just going to grow out of mm -hmm. it, you know, and <laughs> it's just a phase that they're, they're going through. And I think that when we become too fearful and we focus on, you know, what we're afraid of happening, then we lose sight of uh, supporting, supporting our kids and, and focusing on the, the positive outcomes that we want for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the community too, you know, like I feel like as a social worker, when I would go into schools and the tone really matters. Like if the tone of the care team or the tone of the community is like, how can we help? Or this is interesting or let's dig in, or it's just a positive tone. It matters. And when the, you know, care team is frustrated and the kid is a burden. Um, and not to say that frustration doesn't happen and that that should be dealt with and that that's okay, you know, for parents, for the community members, for teachers, for social workers to feel frustrated with a situation. I, I think that's okay. And that should be handled in a way, but not in a way that like, if the kid went away, their lives would be better. Cause I feel like when that is interpreted by a kid more than once or by more more than one community members, it directly impacts uh, how they feel about themselves and then any desire to show up differently because like it, it's really hard to rewrite that narrative and it's a burden a kid shouldn't have to deal with, but it's really hard to rewrite that narrative once, um, once a school or a care team or a community or a church or a whoever puts you in a box. I, I, that's absolutely true and I think that sometimes it matters more not what you do but how you do mm. it to help a child exactly like how you're saying of your tone because kids who have been uh through trauma or unsafe situations a lot of times those kids are the most able to be attuned to what the adults emotions are mm. and, and and feelings are around them because they had to do that for their safety because if you have uh, experienced violence from your caregivers, you learn how to pay attention pretty quick to who's getting frustrated. And if you are feeling unsafe and your trauma is triggered, you can't think with the part of your brain that's going to help you make the best decision for your life. And I wish I could go back in time, you know, when I first graduated from college and worked in a group home, and I knew what I know now about how trauma impacts the brain sure. because I wouldn't have been lecturing kids and I wouldn't have been, you know, trying to help them think about what their consequences were going to be when they were in a state of being triggered yeah. or fight, flight, or freeze. You know, I would have been helping them calm down and helping them feel safe because it's not just enough to be safe. You have to actually feel safe and, um, when you help a child to feel safe, that's when you give them the opportunity. And all we can do is give kids the opportunity. All we can do is give parents the opportunity to make better choices. And we don't get to control whether they choose that or not. But if we are just 
going through the motions and we're angry at them and we're frustrated with them and that spills over into how we treat them, then they're going to sense that and it's going to make them less likely to be able to do it. I mean, I work with, you know, adoptive families sometimes that really I have no judgment for, but are, are at a point where they're, you know, overwhelmed with their, you know, teenage child's behavior and they don't know if they can continue to care for them. And it doesn't give a child an opportunity to attach. It doesn't give a child an opportunity to feel safe if they know that they might be moved from their foster home or um, a, a adoptive home or even biological right. home. You know, <laughs> biological parents get overwhelmed too. And so I, I think that too much we focus on trying to fix fix problems and, you know, <laughs> solve solve problems when we really just need to be the saying like what can I do to be part of the solution what can what what can I do to be helpful and, and supportive and we don't have to fix everything we just have to not further harm kids and not you know not make things worse sometimes we can't can't um make things all the way better we just have to do what we can to to not make things worse and <laughs> just try our best. Yeah, uh, you just uh, brought up something for me where it's like, as soon as, and we all do, we all make judgments, we all place blame, like totally human, that's fine. But if we can be aware of where we're placing blame, like if we stop and we realize that by the time we're placing blame, it might be saying we're placing blame on the kid, we might be placing blame on the kid's parent. We might be placing blame on a department or a school or whatever. But the second we place blame, we've taken ourselves out of any way of being part of the solution. We've made a conclusion. We've, we've you know, kind of negatively associated with, you know, it's all of this one department or this one person or this one child's issue. Um, so totally. at times that we're saying like, who's, when we're trying to place fault, if we can kind of pull that fault away and say, well, it's nobody's fault. It is what it is. It's a culmination of life experiences yeah. that have ended up in this messy soup. And, you know, what are we going to do with the soup? Totally, totally. I, I, um, love to just not not let myself get distracted by, you know, or by what other people are doing or not doing. Uh, Cause it's so easy as humans to, to go down that road. And it's much better to say, okay, what's my role in this situation? How can I help? And that's why I admire you so much because I think that healing relationships you know we're people we're people we're humans we need connections with other people we need connections to feel safe mm -hmm. and and to heal and so uh, having a healing relationship um and a safe relationship with a child and with a parent too adults need that same love and support right. and acceptance and understanding, you know, just because they're, they're over 18 doesn't mean they don't deserve it. And so that's one of the best things that we can do. And I, I have family members who, you know, were incarcerated and would send me a letter and that type of emotional support and knowing somebody thought of me and cared about me, that was, that was so helpful to me. And so I, I think that definitely letting go of our judgments and <laughs> as much as we can, you know, we, we can just easily say, Hey, is this safe or unsafe? Okay. Well, if it's unsafe, we got to do something about it right away. If it's not unsafe and it's um, not illegal, we should let a kid make a choice when they can. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, this has been enlightening. I'm so glad that we were able to get you on the the podcast and and kind of hear the juvenile justice side of it and 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 see, you know, how well actually the system is doing at breaking down these cases and offering support and hopefully giving that early intervention that's needed to 
not have more kids come into care and then have those kids actually make healthy transitions into adulthood. Um, I love it. I love them. I love to hear how progressive, you know, even Georgia, you know, states that you wouldn't typically say are progressive. You're just starting to see more and more programs that are early intervention centered, family centered, support centered, and you're hearing more and more, uh, service workers like you that are trauma-informed, um, and I love it. I love the adoption of these new frameworks, or not so new, but these I frameworks. Do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do too, and definitely we still have a long way to go, and I'm somebody who is uh, wanting to be part of continuously learning and, and continuously uh, reforming things that can be improved, and 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 I think that it's people like you who have a podcast that shares this type of information that I've been able to learn from. And I, and I am so appreciative of you. Well, I am appreciative of you. I'm so glad that you've dedicated your life to this. It's incredible. It's incredible with your backstory. And it's also like that you've stayed in uh, this type of work for your whole career. I know the turnover rate and the burnout rate for service providers, for Department of Children and Families workers, for anybody that's in a service provider role, typically, um, you know, it, it's high, the, the burnout rate. So thank you for sticking with it and seeing the, the hope in sometimes hopeless situations and uh, we're so glad that, you know, we have people like you in this world that can intervene with kids and actually care and feel like you're there, um, you know, put yourself in a position where, what would you do if they're your kid? Uh, that's beautiful. So thank you. Thank you so much. friends how exciting is it that we have people like Angela who are working with youth uh, and working in juvenile justice to help get family supports that they need so that it doesn't turn into a pipeline to prison right I'm just so happy that we have people like her and to hear the reform that has been made since you know her uncle was in the system and as a runaway kind of got deemed you know a bad kid even though he was running away because of his mistreatment in his foster home so many uh opportunities right to offer the right programming offer the right supports to make a difference in a kid's life that's the deal here right is that we can with the right supports and the right attitude and the right tone and showing up at the right times in giving moments, we can be those small things that set kids on the right track. And I, I really hope that while you were listening to Angela, you realized that, you know, kids do need to be poured into. They do need to be at least go somewhere in their life where they're seen as valuable and not the kid that's labeled, the kid that's bad, the kid that's broken the law, the kid that's truant, the kid that's in foster care. So we try to combat this so much with the Stable Moments program, right? And um, thank you guys for being part of that community. Thank you for being a big deal in the lives of children. All right, I'll see you guys next month. Be well and keep rocking it out.